This season of the Curiosity Club podcast is sponsored by Simprove. Simprove is committed to furthering the understanding of the function and role of the gut microbiome by using a scientific approach to developing the most effective bacteria-based product. Put simply, Simprove helps to support your gut microbiome and balance your gut bacteria. What I love about it is its water-based formulation that contains four unique strains of live-activated bacteria – Because of this unique formulation, Simprove will not trigger digestion, meaning the bacteria will arrive to your gut unharmed and in full strength, survive the harsh acidic environment that is your stomach, and thrive in your gut to colonise successfully. Simprove's 12-week programme will give you the best chance of nourishing your gut bacteria and supporting your gut microbiome. The more I learn about gut health, the more important I realise it is. And I'm currently in my 12-week programme and I love knowing that I am supporting and topping up the good bacteria that lives within me. If you want to join me on your own programme, Simprove have been kind enough to give all you lovely curious folk a special 15% discount for a limited time using the code CuriosityClub15. Welcome to the Curiosity Club podcast, a safe place for the real life lessons that we didn't get taught in school. Each season, I have conversations with inspiring experts who share their wisdom around our seven peaks of curiosity. Together, we learn how to break the patterns, habits, and mindsets that limit our potential, hinder our happiness, and impact our well being. I'm your host, life and business coach Katri Barrett, and these are the life lessons for modern humans. Welcome to season two, episode five. Before I introduce you to this week's guest, I have an exciting giveaway announcement. Our wonderful sponsors, Simprove and I, have teamed up to give another one of you lucky lot a 12-week Simprove program to support your gut health. All you need to do to enter is first, leave a rating and write a review of the Curiosity Club podcast on either the Apple Podcast app or iTunes. And secondly, take a screenshot of your review and either share it on your Instagram stories, tagging us at the Curiosity Club underscore, or if you're not on Instagram, you can email us the screenshot at hello at catrybarrett.com. I'll leave the link in the show notes for you. The giveaway closes 31st of August 2020, and then I will randomly pick a winner on the 1st of September. Head to the show notes for all the terms and conditions, and I'll send the links to email and our Instagram there as well, so to make it as easy as possible. I cannot wait to read all of your reviews. I love hearing what is sitting with you and causing you to become curious about the topics that we're exploring in the episodes. Good luck to you all, and I will be in touch with the winner on the 1st of September. Why not quickly just pause the episode now and write yours before you forget, which I know it's very easy to do. So today's guest is Sharu Izadi, and we are talking about all things habits. Sharu is a behavioral change specialist, speaker, and author. Her approach is influenced by the experience that she gained working in the addiction treatment field. She has since been dedicated to highlighting what those in long-term recovery from substance misuse can teach the general population about motivation, self-compassion, and self-awareness. Sheru runs sellout habit change workshops and is regularly asked to speak publicly on behavior change, mental health, addiction, self-esteem, motivation, and well-being. Her first book, The Kindness Method, was released in June 2018 and has so far been translated into five languages. She was named as one of Red Magazine's Smart Women of 2018 and selected for Marie Claire's 2019 Verified Power with Purpose list. 
And in November 2019, she was given the Thought Leader of the Year Award at the House of Lords. Her second book, The Last Diet, was published in the UK in 2019 and the USA in 2020. As you can see, Sheru has a wealth of knowledge and experience, both personally and professionally, about why we have habits, why so many of us struggle to change them, and how you can begin to make long-term progress with any behavior that you would like to alter slightly. Be that how you use shopping, social media, food, alcohol, and a whole lot more. We all have at least a few habits that could do with our attention, or that we would benefit from being kinder to ourselves for. And this is what we can throughout this episode in a huge amount of detail. And Sheru includes some of her incredible repertoire of practical exercises so that you can get started helping yourself today. Enjoy. Just a quick note, most of the interviews were recorded during lockdown over Zoom, which isn't the best for audio. So please do excuse the sound quality. We were doing the best with what we had. Well, welcome Sheru. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. It's very nice. I'm excited for this conversation. I've wanted to have you on the podcast for quite a while now, since I met you last year. Can you start by telling the listeners and us a little bit more about your work, your amazing books, and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Um, I help people to change their habits, essentially. I'm a behavioral change specialist. So when people have habits that they're engaging in that they're not happy with, I help them to gain more insight into why they're finding it hard to change and give them some tools that they can use for themselves whenever they're finding it hard to change their habits. Um, And the sorts of tools that I use uh, are mainly written exercises that were inspired by what I saw working in addiction treatment. So in 2012, I I trained um, as an assistant psychologist with the NHS and trained for a year in a substance misuse service in Northwest London. And I realized that so many of the exercises and approaches that were being used by people to find recovery from addictions were actually really helpful and adaptable to um, any day-to-day habit. And so I just kept becoming more and more obsessed with these motivational techniques. And I used them on myself um, because, you know, after a lifetime nearly of yo-yo dieting and being really unkind to myself and my body, I was able to absolutely transform my own behaviors using these tools. So I was like really sold. And now, and then um, I, yeah, I just kept help handing, handing them over, doing workshops, etc. And long story short, that ended up in me writing books. So called The Kindness Method and The Last Diet. And those books also hand over tools so that people don't need to come see me. <laughs> It is, and that's something that I that I love about your books, and in particular with the, the kindness method. As as someone who is, as people know, very into self development and equipping people with the tools, I love the practical exercise exercises. And is it that you call maps, don't you, in 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 the book the the exercises? Is that have I remembered that right? Yeah, they're just mind maps. They're inspired by the node link maps that we used in substance misuse that are like where you can have lots of things scattered on a page and have ideas moving on from each other, much like the mind maps we did at school to revise and things like that. Um, it's just another way of getting around that that feeling of having to sit down and write in lines and the pressure of that. I think a lot of the time when we sit and do a map, we feel like we can leave it. And when something else comes up, we can add to it. Um, whereas if we're writing in prose, I don't feel like it lends itself as much to that. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree. And I think it's something that worked really well. I really like that as, as, as a way of exercising or sort of pros, pulling things out of your head, but in a, in a helpful process. What would, can you tell us a little bit about what some of the most sort of common unwanted habits are that you see people struggling with and, and why are habits so hard to change? I think a lot of the time, our, we focus on what's wrong with our habits. And so I get a lot of people coming into um, around unwanted eating habits. So like binging and restricting, mindless snacking, um, eating past the point of being full and not really understanding why. And a lot of those people are concerned about the byproduct of that and how it makes their bodies and their minds feel and look. And there are other people who are a little bit concerned about their alcohol consumption, um, but they don't want to stop drinking altogether. And so I help them to find their own version of, of moderation, if, if, if that's possible in that case, in their case. And I also talk to people about things like procrastination, gaming. I think the difficulty a lot of the time with habits in changing them for ourselves, even though often it seems seemingly simple to change them, is that we underestimate how dependent we are on them. And we underestimate what purpose they're serving or once served in our lives. And we think that just focusing on the negatives and the negative outcomes and why we're not happy with it is going to be enough to motivate us to change. And I think I'm very much a believer in, in that looking at what's right about your habits and how they're serving you is actually what makes it a lot easier. Because a lot of the time when we look at habits as coping, coping strategies, which is often the case in my, um, in my work, we realize that it's understandable why you would develop that habit. It's helped you at some time. It's made something easier or it's helped you delay something else or it's helped you distract from something else. And it's that insight into that something else that actually helps us. It's looking at the problematic habit as a solution more, more than a problem, actually. Mm. Yeah, I can see that that's such a powerful shift for so many people because I think most people, and I know myself certainly in the past and I and I catch myself now falling into that as well but speaking to so many people where they they you hear people describing their habits as a, a bad habit or they don't have the willpower to change or they're never gonna change something so I think that that is such a a transformative shift for people I, I imagine to simply just think what why am I doing it what's the positive that it's what am I what is it giving me this habit rather than seeing it as the kind of um, something really negative in the the that that the, the they should shouldn't be doing. I suppose it's the shoulds and shoulds, isn't it, that come into that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it can help you have more compassion for yourself for having developed a habit that you're no longer happy with, because you can think, you know, I'm not weak. I don't mm. want this to end up madly. I just needed this. Well, there was a time where I was attending to everything else and everyone else. And so this was something that got neglected. And now it's a time where I can deal with this as opposed to just thinking, oh, I'm so weak. I have all the information I need and I can't do anything. I'm just greedy and lazy and all these things we call ourselves. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And looking where, um, I suppose, point, pinpointing exactly where habits come from. Is that something that, that you find that people find easy, easy to do? Or is it something that takes when you're working with, with people some help to kind of find that and discover that? No, I find that people tend to have a lot of insight into themselves. I think it's more just carving out time to think about it mm -hmm. and notice your own patterns. I don't think, I mean, certainly in terms of our emotional health and our coping strategies, et cetera, I don't know about you, but I wasn't given a framework at school to kind of check in with that stuff. It feels like it's almost, it was almost a remedial thing, you know. You only wondered about your mental health or your general habits and how they were serving you if something went wrong. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, so no, I completely agree with that. I think, well, that's partly why the part of the strap line of this podcast is everything you wish you'd learned in school. So I love that you just touched upon mm-hmm. that. <laughs> it's everything that we, if we'd been learned, taught, taught at school how to understand our emotions, we'd be able to cope with them in, in better ways. And I think you, you mentioned coping um, habits and sort of coping strategies there. And, and you and I sort of spoke before before um, recording this this episode that about the current situation, which I think is important to mention. We're not we don't want to we're not going to make the whole episode about it. But the fact that when we're recording this, we are currently in lockdown during um, the coronavirus uh, pandemic in um, so we're locked down in the UK and something that would I think be really useful for you to touch upon and, and to just give your insights on is what kind of impact do you think that this current situation and everything with COVID-19 has is having and has had on people's behaviours and habits and and how are they um, impacting people's overall coping strategies do you think? I think it's important to say first of all that the people I'm talking to tend to be the people who actively want to manage their habits at this time or have the capacity or the means to. And I think right now, understandably, it's a time where a lot of people, it's just at the bottom of their, you know, the day-to-day habits, the unwanted ones, is at the, understandably at the bottom of the pile. Mm-hmm. I do know um, comfort eating has come up quite a lot and drinking more frequently, which makes a lot of sense. You know, the way I see coping strategies, when you take the judgment out of them, it's like we all have this big toolkit. Um, And say, for example, to deal with stress, we do things like a guided meditation, some exercise, and wine. These are our three stress tools, for example. If that guided meditation was something you did on the way to work, and the exercise was the gym at work, for example, And now your stress has increased a lot, understandably so, for various reasons. And the only tool available to you happens to be the wine. Then invariably, the wine's going to be on higher rotation right now, heavier rotation rather. (laughs) And I think more and more of my clients are realizing, or the people that I speak to too, are just realizing that so much, so many of the habits that keep them well on a day-to-day basis, keep them feeling calm and positive and strong are habits that rely on their existing routine, which is understandable. And so um, I think a lot of people are noticing how easy it is to slip into unwanted habits when their full range of tools isn't there. And don't get me wrong, all these tools aren't things you go out of your way and do. One of them is, for example, connecting with your colleagues every day. You know, anything that helps you feel a little bit more connected, calm, grounded, et cetera, that it just isn't there anymore. And so, yeah, the conversations I'm having are with people who are concerned hugely about things like comfort eating and drinking, habits of consumption um, that usually they've already managed to get a handle on. But now, you know, I don't want to throw around the word too much because we're hearing it a lot, but it is unprecedented. You know, people don't know when it's going to end. And I think a lot of people are reluctant to establish and embed new routines before they know how long we're looking at. (laughs) Mm, yeah, absolutely, and I think it sounds like everything what you just said. The that actually the our coping strategies and and acknowledging those and the fact that that some of those or a lot of those for some people I'm sure have been taken taken away or, or altered some of the things that make up that that strategy and therefore those certain habits will have 
increased or and maybe um maybe there's new ones and that are sort of coming out the the woodwork and things like that and it's that's understandable you said sort of being kind to ourselves you've mentioned about that with and, and it's I think actually that is so relevant even going forward isn't it whilst everything is kind of under a magnifying glass during these unusual times I think it's it perhaps for some people who as you said have have the capacity to use this as a time to maybe acknowledge where things perhaps do need a little bit of tweaking or a little bit of their attention for those people how could they um sort of use this time and looking forward longer term use the kind of um explore their coping strategies and as a way to developing more um helpful or empowering sort of habits that that serve them better I think number one, it's an opportunity to really notice your cravings and your urges and your bodily sensations when you're not necessarily, for a lot of people, the same routine isn't imposed on you. You know, you don't necessarily have to eat at a certain time because your colleagues are, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm noticing a lot of people seeing this as an opportunity to really check in with themselves, you know, their their sleep patterns, how much water they're drinking, how important air is for them, the sorts of people they want to communicate with. So in that sense, it's been a bit of an audit. For a lot of people in terms of the flexibility. I think the other thing is remembering that whilst this is an, a very extreme kind of situation, there will invariably be times where your routine is disrupted. And it is about trusting yourself more than your plan a lot of the time. It is about doing the sorts of exercises that make you believe in yourself and care for yourself. And, you know, I'm a, I really, really, really believe that. And so I would say now more than ever, Accept that there will be other times where you don't have access to, to the same resources that keep you well. You know, it could be that you're on holiday, for example, and think about the things you can do, the written exercises, the gratitude list, you know, the softer tools we think about less, I think, um, to keep you feeling well at a time when, you, when you're in chaos or there's, you know, your routine's in disarray. Mm, I love what you just said there about the, the trusting yourself more than your plan. I think that's a really nice, a nice sort of example of, of the importance of kind of learning to listen to your intuition and, and your body, as you were saying, um, a little bit more. With with that, I think, um, sort of jumping, jumping ahead a little bit, I think this is, it would be a really nice time to, for you to kind of talk a little bit through about how, what the sort of process is that you, you help people with. You, you've mentioned a, f- a few things there in terms of um, looking at the sort of softer tools and gratitude lists list and that and things like that. But how, um, what is the process sort of that you help, help people move towards if, if changing a, a sort of specific help, um, habit that you see quite common in people? When it comes to planning changes, a lot of people, myself in- included in the past, are very used to going straight to the meticulous plan. So, what am I going to eat? Where am I going to go? Who am I going to see? What exercise am I going to do? Where are the classes? Where's the boot camp? Where's the whatever it is? My work is, as you will have noticed in the book, you know, the planning chapters don't come in until like the 20th chapter or something. Um, Because I think that what we're missing a lot of the time is the tools that keep us motivated when our plans aren't going to plan. And I think that comes down to building self-compassion, self-belief and self-awareness. And so my work is around handing over different kinds of tools so that people can experiment with them. And they're usually just written exercises that take five minutes and you can do them daily or like small mindfulness exercises, super simple. 
try and give them options so that people can eventually find ones that suit them and their lifestyle and integrate it into their daily lives so that then whether it is the more self-compassion or more self-esteem or more self-awareness that's kind of holding them back at those times when they need motivation, then they have this guidance and these exercises and these little things they've written for themselves, reminders, scripts. What I do is equip people with the insight and the motivational tools that they need before they've even begun the plan. Um, and I think that there's a lot to be said for, for that investment being made in yourself first and foremost and how you feel about it, making sure it works for you, creating the path of least resistance for yourself, planning for what you'll do when you when you go off plan, writing yourself letters, you know, lots of little exercises you can do and lots of things you can keep and take pictures of on your phone to remind you of why it's important to stay on track when you're most inclined to tell yourself that it's not. Um, so, yeah, it's that. It's about creating... A motivational coach out of yourself basically mm, yeah, I, I love that and I, and I think that's what I love so much about your work is that it's such a toolbox for people and also looking forward and kind of being real that, that there are going to be just t- t- times that are hard or times when you go off off piece off plan and, and things but strategizing for that with with a plan for when you go off plan is exactly as you just said I, I love that I think it's so so important and um, well, I think sorry one thing what it can also do is make going off plan really fun when you feel more in control and you've demonstrated yourself, demonstrated how frequently you're, cap- you're capable of coming straight back on track and enjoying the entire process of going off plan, whatever that means for you, then going off plan can be really fun. I think it's difficult going off plan when you don't trust yourself. You know, like a few weeks ago, I was doing a talk at Sweaty Betty and there was, uh, well, not weeks, sorry, don't worry, I didn't <laughs> have my own event while everyone was on lockdown. I guess it was a couple of months ago, last year, who knows, who knows. <laughs> At this day, but there was a lady who put her hand up at the end, and I really related to her because she said that she wanted like reasons or excuses to not go somewhere if someone was making dinner because the food that they were cooking wasn't on plan. And she and I could tell she just didn't trust herself. It's that sort of all or nothing. I've ruined it now. Thinking that I'm so I was so used to before, where you kind of think, oh gosh, if I do something, I did, that I said I wasn't going to do, then that's me. I'm spiraling. That's it. I, things are out of control. And you know, my response to her was obviously that you, you're going to need to, well, first of all, be honest about it. If you feel that you're trying to work on your habits around anything, share. A lot of the time people will, will, will relate, if not always, <laughs> and appreciate your vulnerability. But the other thing I said to her was that if you start demonstrating over and over and over again that a blip an enjoyable, spontaneous blip from your plan doesn't need to be treated as a catastrophe. Um, then you won't be scared and you won't be depriving yourself of things like human connection and going to your friend's house for dinner, you know? So I think it's about, again, that's, that's what I mean when I say put your trust in yourself more than your plan. Mm, oh, that's, it's so so important and actually you kind of you've touched exactly on, on a note that I'd made here from from I can't remember which which one of your books um that I read it in but about lapses and relapses and actually acknowledging the difference between those and I I that that really resonated with me and I was like wow I wish if I had sort of had that you know it allows for the gray areas in, in life and like not falling into that black and white all or nothing um mindset which I wish I'd had when I was a teenager and had going through my own struggles with with food in particular um but can you explain it a bit as to to define those a little bit for people because i think it's so useful 
what the all or nothing thinking still so, the, and, and different relapses and relapses yeah yeah so I learned working in addiction that a lapse was a sort of temporary deviation from your plan and a relapse was when you'd spiral back to where you started or worse um and I realized that people who were managing lapses really well um I was I was learning a lot from them when I was observing them. They were learning from them and going straight back on track. And they were able to unlearn this all or nothing thinking and take the same common sense, moderate common sense, sensible, healthy advice that they would give another person and sort of unpack a lot of those myths of I've blown it now. And I noticed that the people who were able to talk themselves back from a lapse quickly were actually able to... um, learn about themselves enormously quickly and be a lot nicer to themselves. And so um, the way that I teach a lot of people to eat some, eat and enjoy some foods moderately is initially to look at it as a lapse, a lapse that you come back from more and more quickly until eventually it's not a lapse anymore. It's just you enjoying a particular food in a new way. (laughs) Yeah, no, we associate, especially because of things like dieting. Like in, in my case, it was because of dieting. Um, it ended it ended me with this really feast or famine, all or nothing, deprived, I'll start on Monday, binging, restricting cycle. That that I I I actually think made me end up putting on an enormous amount of weight, if I'm honest with you. All those final Sunday night binges whereas if I had just understood the difference between lapse and relapse and known that there are so many opportunities to rein things in and nip it in the bud and get back on track even better than before then if you hadn't lapsed sometimes because of what you've learned about yourself in certain circumstances um yeah enormous enormously helpful for me and my all or nothing thinking the other thing being of course is that someone came to me and told me that they had lapsed on a plan that they knew they wanted to keep up and that um, meant a lot to them and they weren't believing in themselves and their capacity to get back on track. Invariably, I would say to them, yes, you you can get on track. You can get on track immediately. It was a blip. What are you talking about? How can I help you? You know, you can absolutely do this. Whereas when, when we're justifying it ourselves, a lot of the time it doesn't make that much sense. It's a lot more all or nothing. You've, you've blown it now. You can't start until Monday or tomorrow or whatever mm, yeah I can I completely agree and I think that's why it, it resonated with um, me so much I think in particular the I'll start on Monday which I read I read in I think it's, it's in the last day I uh, certainly have had a lot of uh, new, new start Mondays myself I know. and I think it's so many people do and I think and, and as you've everything you just said there it's, it just highlights the power of actually saying these things out loud often to people whether it's a, a professional um or whether it's even a friend because other people if we realize that other people have blips and lapses all the time it's what you do with them right and and how what meaning you take 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 from them that's that's really important how much could, you mentioned just previously and, and I, um how much would you say that that someone's level of um self, self someone's self-esteem or their ability to be compassionate towards themselves how much does that impact um the changes that they're able to make within themselves i think it it impacts it enormously because of how much it impacts the way we speak to ourselves and i think if we speak to ourselves like a person who we want to succeed, who we believe in, 
who we care for, who we think deserves to hear nice things and be reminded of their long-term values, um, valued direction, then I think we can, um, we can get stuff done a lot more quickly and a lot more easily, frankly. So aside from the fact that, of, of course, I want us all to have abundant, an abundance of self-esteem and self-worth and all of those things. If we talk about habits specifically, I'm a true believer in that the way that you speak to yourself dictates the way that you behave. Um, and often if you speak to yourself like someone who you want to do well, who you really care about, um, then you'll behave in ways that you're happier with tomorrow. Would you say that it, the way that we speak to ourselves, would, it, would that be considered a habit? Yeah. Absolutely. A lot of us have got into a habit of beating ourselves up <laughs> internally. Um, it is, but it's often not one that we're conscious of. And actually, that's an interesting thing that I've noticed, is that the voluntary challenge of trying to change a habit is actually a really effective way of turning up the volume on the way that you're speaking to yourself. So any change, even if you said, I just want to wake up 15 minutes earlier every morning... As soon as you put challenge and discomfort in the scenario, you you actually, I've certainly found, and a lot of my clients and readers have, that you actually are able to listen in on on the habit on the habits you have and the patterns you have when it comes to the way that you talk to yourself. And I think it's it's a habit that's considerably harder to change, um, for a range of very complex reasons for lots of people. But it's a habit that's easier to change than you'd think, if that makes sense, because we so rarely check in with how we're speaking to ourselves and what's what would be some sort of ways that people could start to to notice the kind of stories the narratives that are going on in in, in their heads like that that might not be serving them and, and then begin to change them i think the next time you do something you're not happy with like anything lock your keys in the car send a message send an email that you shouldn't have sent in haste anything like that just notice how long it's taking you to forgive yourself Notice the way you're speaking to yourself, whether it's fair, whether it's useful, whether you're like dredging up things from the past. Like I was speaking to my friend James about this um, a few months, or oh, maybe last year. Who knows anymore? <laughs> Who knows what it was? <laughs> but I was talking to my, my friend about it, and he was saying that he tried this and noticed that the way he was beating himself up for something small he didn't manage to do that day was like going into the past and his childhood and you were always the sort of person who couldn't do this and it's like it was such a basic thing and you would never go out of your way to be that horrible to someone else and go into such detail chronological detail as to why they failed at this one task um and I think a lot of the time it is just about catching that and asking yourself is it fair I think people often think, oh, gosh, I'm going to hear all this harrowing stuff and I'm never going to be able to change it. And, yes, it is difficult and will be more ingrained for some people than others. But sometimes it is a matter of just an update and thinking, is this fair? Would I speak to someone I even hated this way? And is it more importantly when it comes to habits, is this useful? Is this motivating me? And you can start debating with it. I think I find it a little bit difficult to hear when people use phrases like replace a thought. Mm. or change a thought or just pick a pick a better one <laughs> as someone who's who's who has struggled with anxiety and struggles sometimes still I find that a little bit basic but not basic you know in like the shady way that we say basic now but <laughs> it um 
it reduces it a little bit. Whereas I think we can debate with them. I think we can have a debate with that. Rather than thinking we're going to replace one voice with another, bring in another voice. Bring in a fair, objective sort of auditor <laughs> who's coming in to think, okay, what's what's going on here? Why are we being horrible to her? What's that based on? What did she do that made, made her deserve this? You know, that kind of thing. That can help enormously. Oh, I love that. Bring, bringing in another voice. Well, I suppose stepping back, the first step is acknowledge the voice within in your head, especially when you do something that you deem to be wrong or maybe a bad habit or slip or a blip. Um, and bringing in a fairer voice that, and, and, and is it, it sounds like what is important that that voice is not only fair, but also motivating. And is that right? If you can have it be motivating, sure. But often I find fair does the work for motivating too. Yeah. You know, but yeah, I mean, the, the nicer, the better, frankly. Yeah. And, that, and how do you, when people struggle with that, and I know you and I having spoken to you and also reading your books and, and your work, I know that both of you and I personally have struggled with this in, in the past, but when people far, really struggle with that, that finding that fair voice or giving it that voice airtime, what sort of one little, or a couple of tips that they could do to, to, in order to make that voice a little stronger and a little louder? I think writing it down is important. So writing down your responses to each little insult or core belief that you beat yourself with and actually thinking, is this true? Writing down the reasons you think it might be true and just really reflecting on what you're saying outside of your head, however possible. The other thing I find useful and I've been, <laughs> I've been <laughs> a little bit careful recommending this in case I'm going to create a, you know, a city of people, a country of people going around <laughs> talking to themselves. But I do think it really helps to talk to yourself. I really, really do. I live alone, so obviously I have the luxury. But a lot of the time when you're hearing something internal and you think, oh, I feel like I can't quite work out what I'm thinking right now, but I get, I suspect it's not very nice. Hear yourself out loud. Try to explain it out loud. I find that really, really helps me, whether it's writing it down or saying it out loud. I can grow in compassion for someone and become more fair, or rather for myself, when it looks like someone else has told me it or written it down, and I'm reading it more objectively, I find that, that that can help enormously to unpack the way that you're talking to yourself and take a bit of the emotion out of it and just think, this is not the way that humans speak to each other, so why am I speaking to myself this way? And I'll tell you one other thing that's helped me enormously, and I try and share this because otherwise it just feels so indulgent and selfish. I always thought that I was the exception. Like, I was the one person who didn't deserve to speak to myself kindly and everyone else did. And no one knew that I just had the secret of being the one bad one. And one of the greatest gifts I've been given, being able to do the work I do and meet the hundreds and thousands of people who I do, is um, everyone seems to think that they're the exception. And statistically speaking, it's impossible that we all are. <laughs> so everyone's finding it difficult, let me tell you. <laughs> But there's so much power in that, isn't it? And I think, and it's so important, as you said, to, to, to talk about that and highlight that, especially now, the fact that you actually have the experience, you've spoken to so many different people. So, you know, you've almost, you've collected the data on this, on this almost, mm -hmm. to know that and, and reminding ourselves of that, that it's okay to feel the way that we do, I think, and, and that you're not, you're not the only one and that you, you can create these changes in yourself. It's so, so important. Um, something I would love to to talk to you about and touch upon 
Um, and it, it was it comes from the uh, a chapter in your um, book, The Kindness Method: Lessons from Addiction, because I really enjoyed this chapter, and, and it's something that I actually feel quite passionately about myself. And that's that so many people I, I speak to and I have spoken to in the past seem to hold still hold many misconceptions around addiction. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. And is there would would you say that there are um, that there are more than the kind of general acknowledged forms of addiction, the sort of typical ones that people accept to be sort of you know, things like alcoholism, drug addiction, and maybe gambling addiction. But how much would you say that there are more everyday sort of habit addictions that people tend to overlook within themselves and, and other people? I think the word addiction makes it difficult because of the different de- different definitions and people coming you know, within substance misuse, for example, there was the discussion of whether if something's not physically addictive, whether it's, you know, whether mm-hmm. addiction is a disease. These are all debates and things things that are discussed widely in addiction anyway. But I think ultimately when you're in, when you're trying to change something, but you're finding it particularly difficult and you don't really understand why, um, if it's a problem for you, then it's a problem. That's the way I see it. And yes, there are day-to-day things that we're all feeling more a lot a lot more dependent on. And I know people who are in, addi- in abstinent addiction from alcohol who would tell you that their first and foremost addiction is around food and that that's the one they find it most difficult to crack, not least because you can't be abstinent from food. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think there are things that are bringing people to their knees when it comes to how dependent they feel be it gaming or spending or social media, um, that, yeah, we don't take as seriously in society. Definitely. I think, sorry, carry on. No, no, no. I was just going to say, I was just going to go off on one about how much I'm in awe of people in recovery. Good, Uh, do it. Go off on one. Well, that's just kind of the other thing is that people will ask me things about addiction and addicts and I'll I'll remember that I'm in such a bubble um, because as far as I'm concerned, as as far as I'm concerned, a person in long-term recovery, especially in the, the fellowships or, or smart recovery or some sort of structured mutual aid, um, knows far more than the average person about how to manage day-to-day habits and about personal development and self-awareness and self-compassion and could teach teach lectures on it, frankly. So when when people have a misconception about addiction and people who are in recovery, I just think, or thinking that they are in any way less equipped to deal with day-to-day life than the average person, um, I think they are wildly wrong <laughs> all the time, and I tell them. No, I completely, completely agree, which is why it's something that I think is, um, that I sort of wanted to touch upon, because as, as you said, the people who have overcome such, have gone to certain places and then overcome them, I think it's, it's incredible that, that what people will have um, learned about themselves and, and continue to, how they continue to work on themselves. I completely completely agree with that with with self-kindness we've touched upon sort of self-compassion self-kindness has come up a a lot and this is a really big part of of your work and with kindness method in particular that's your the title of your first book and the process that you teach people through the book can you talk a little bit even more about this and why it is so so important when it comes to creating change I think self-kindness comes down to treating ourselves the way that we would want our loved ones to treat themselves. And so, and that 
tends not to mean doing whatever we want whenever we want. It tends to be, mean making decisions for ourselves that we'll be glad we made tomorrow and in a week. So sometimes the kind decision isn't the easy decision. And so I think it's important when it comes to kindness to make sure that our de- that's our definition of it. Doing the sorts of things that are going to benefit me tomorrow and in a week and in a month. And doing the, the, the sorts of things for myself that have my overall well-being in mind. Speaking to, to myself the way I would speak to a loved one if they needed motivating. Taking the same common sense advice I would give a loved one. Um, speaking myself, um, respecting my own intelligence. For example, if I'm making an excuse that I would never expect someone who I think is intelligent to buy, then um, why am I buying it? Or, you know, thinking or behaving in a way when only you're watching that you're proud of. These are the sorts of kindness. These are the sorts of elements of self-kindness and self-compassion that I think can, can help enormously when you're changing habits for, you know, obvious, obvious reasons. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think exactly what you touched on there is such an important point that actually sometimes being kind, a sort of kind decision isn't, isn't the easiest decision. And it's about having boundaries within for, for ourselves as well as, as other people. Mm-hmm. Would you say, are there any particular sort of myths that you see people believing about making changes or, or habits in particular that you um, could sort of touch upon a little bit and bust us some myths around them if you think there are <laughs> any? Some people think that being mean to yourself is the only way to get you somewhere. Um, and I believe that it can get you somewhere, but it won't keep you there. <laughs> and so I think a lot of the time when people are like, it hasn't got bad enough, you have to hit your own rock bottom, you know, you have to lose everything, have to be on. I don't believe that's the case. I believe that we can make changes before um, before all our resources are depleted. <laughs> Um, I also know, you know, I also think, as you well know, that tough love, um, I'm not, I'm just not a believer in tough love. I also think that people think that if they have all the information that they need and there's negative impacts of their behaviors, then that's enough as a combination to help them change. Um, and it isn't a lot of the time. It's knowing more about yourself. It's knowing, knowing more about the concept of motivation. It's expecting your motivation to waver, etc. And also not thinking that focusing on what's wrong and what you're moving away from is going to motivate you. So a lot of the time people will say, well, of course I'll stop doing it because I know how much better it's going to be for me. And what they're doing there is they're not acknowledging that they have a relationship with the behavior as well as an opinion on the outcome, if that makes sense. <laughs> Mm. Um, and so a lot of the time it's about look at your relationship with the behavior itself don't just focus on what you want out of it and what you want to get rid of it look at the journey look at the process I don't like to use the word journey I'm not going to lie <laughs> but sometimes <laughs> it just falls out <laughs> um, yeah and also don't don't do something to make changes that you know you can't keep doing to stay changed Again, this this comes back to things like um, fitness and weight loss plans, which a lot of people talk to me about. If you're not going to be able to continue engaging in, in, in that habit for whatever reason, once you've reached your goal, then I think it can often be a false economy. It can often be like a two steps forward, three steps back kind of thing, which sometimes, in my case, it was definitely the case, actually end up, ended up leaving me more disillusioned and demotivated than if I'd never tried in the first place, frankly. 
Mm. Thank you so much for sharing this. I think those are so, so many important reminders for all of us. And and as as you talk about a lot, these, all of these tips are so applicable to any type of habit, be it it a helpful thought pattern that how we beat ourselves up, be that things to do with changing our behavior around food. It, it, or everything that you said is, is so applicable to, to, um, all of these different things. Thank you so much for sharing those with us. If you could summarize, and I know you've given, you've already, you have given us so many amazing bits of advice, but if you could sort of summarize, zoom out, I like to ask all of the guests what your biggest bit of advice would be for listeners in, in general about life. What, what would that be? Honestly, treat yourself for the day in every possible way, the way you would want your loved ones to treat themselves. And you will notice throughout the day that you make tiny little choices that help you feel better teeny tiny little ones in my case it's things like say I'm in bed and I want a glass of water but I'm not super thirsty if my mum wanted a glass of water I'd jump out of bed and get her one but when it's me I keep thinking "Ah, I don't know I'll be right never mind but when I get up next etc you know all those tiny little ways you notice that you're more inclined to take care of yourself take them do them try them and pretend that you're living in the body of someone you love and you will notice so many more opportunities to be nicer to yourself internally and externally. Oh, I love that. I love that as that really simple everyday example, those little micro actions of even the glass of water. I mean, I, I do that same thing lying in bed as, oh, I'll go right to sleep. So I think that's so important. Every, all those little things add up, as you said. So thank you. And then lastly, what does curiosity mean to you and how can we embrace it more? Oh, I love that question. And I love that you like curiosity. <laughs> uh, because curiosity is probably one of the, has, has been one of the most important things in my learning, learning about my own urges and cravings and bodily sensations of feeling more connected to myself and listening in on the way that I'm speaking to myself. I think compassionate curiosity is what enabled me to calmly observe my patterns honestly without judgment and look at where I was at when I was starting with my changes and really understand what I was pushing against in in the way of urges and cravings curiosity almost enabled me to lift out of myself when I noticed myself wanting to do something that I suspected I would later regret and just observe things as if I was an alien visiting from another planet and just observing how humans behave so I'd be like hmm how curious when Sheru speaks to this person under these circumstances she ends up wanting to eat even though she's not hungry (laughs) you know and so that for me made it a more academic less personal um, and less upsetting process to learn about myself and the bits of myself that I wasn't delighted with I love that, that use of word, the alien coming in and oh, I, I resonate so much with everything you said and uh, that is exactly why the curiosity club exists <laughs> and the term yeah. compassionate curiosity I think is, is so so important tell people where they can find you and where can they learn more about your work and get your amazing books my books are available on Amazon um, and all other you can, I mean, do you know the thing is, I keep saying this, but it's just true. With a name like Sheru, you can just tap that into Google and uh, you'll find me. You'll find me pretty fast. Not because I've done that much, but because it's just a very, very, very unique name. Um, so, yeah, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, my books are on 
you know, foils, Amazon, Waterstones, WH Smiths, all that stuff. And um, I'm also, what else do I do? Oh, I have a website. You'll find me. You'll find you. And you've got, I've noticed you've started doing some, um, your newsletters as well, haven't you? Oh, thank you very much for that. <laughs> thank you, social media manager. Yes, I'm doing ruse letters, which I felt very smug with myself when I came up with the name for. Um, I do a newsletter every month at the end of the month, which is more of like one comprehensive theme of things that people have written in about and wanted a bit of help with. And I just pick one theme every month and I write on it or I make a video about it. And I give everyone a little exercise, a free exercise to do and try out on their own. Brilliant. So people can sign up on your website. Yeah. When you go on my website, something will pop up. Um, do you know, one of those annoying boxes that pops up when you're trying to read. (laughs) It's that. (laughs) <laughs> wonderful well thank you so much Rue that you've been an amazing guest and it's jam-packed full of incredible tips and insights my pleasure thank you for having me thank you bye-bye bye if you enjoyed this episode make sure you leave a rating and review letting me know what your biggest takeaways were I love reading each and every one Thank you to Simprove for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget that you can get 15% off with discount code CuriosityClub15. As we're all curious folk around here, why not head over to simprove.com to find out more. Until next time, stay curious.